So is it rolling? Yeah, it's rolling. I feel like we should do an actual intro this time. Okay. Well, just to welcome our guest. Sure. Alex Hearman. Hello. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm pretty good. Welcome to my my shack. Yeah, it's a, we're we're in Alex's room. It's very groovy, Alex. It I is. like your uh, <laughs> I like the patterns going on between this wall and the ceiling right yeah. here. No comment. <laughs> yeah. Well, Alex, you're here because here because Miles tells me you are a Coen Brothers aficionado. Yeah, enthusiast at the very <laughs> least. I don't know what uh, an aficionado technically is. I enjoy them, certainly, and yeah. this one especially. Really? So you, how many times have you seen this movie before? I was, trying, I was trying to figure that out today. Like, when was the first time I saw it? How many times have I seen it? Um, my parents really liked this movie, and it's sort of always been around yeah um it was on comedy central so i feel like i've seen it at least parts of it so many times well we were saying right before we turned on the machine that it's from 1987 yeah the year the year we were all born that's the the best year you're the rabbit yeah way to date us dave now everyone knows how old we are (laughs) yeah i know we're fucking old i was surprised to see that it was the coen brothers second movie yeah. Well, I, you've seen Blood Simple, right? I have, yes. I haven't seen it since I was in high school, and I don't, I don't think I really got it. So maybe you can give us like a little context of uh, like what they were coming from. Because I know that they kind of came onto the scene with Blood Simple and made a splash. And uh, Yeah, so they were a couple guys, brothers, working outside the studio system. And they made Blood Simple this, this noir... Um, I like it, but I don't think it has the depth of some of their later movies, and I don't think it really has the comedy of some of their later movies, but it is um, well shot and well edited and well acted and uh, has the style components that their later work has. And it's uh, tight, too. Yeah, it's like, very tight. All of their the storytelling, like that's something that came up in reading about this movie, too, is that everyone, you know, they're, and and I've heard with their other scripts, it's like, this, the movie is there on paper, and everybody just needs to do service to their script. Yeah, and uh, I think when you have a guy like Nick Cage, that might frustrate him because uh, you know he might want to exercise his own artistic sensibilities, and They're- the Coen brothers don't necessarily give as much room for that kind of thing. Yeah, according to uh, Cage, they give apparently none. Uh, he was really frustrated... I wouldn't say there was tension on set, but there was. They didn't work that well together. Yeah, it sounds like they both they they respected each other. The Coen brothers were happy with him. Like everyone was happy with the product and the way it came out, and it was all for the best. But that Nick Cage wanted to improvise, and they had to keep reeling him in, and uh, but that he, you know, it's not. He didn't feel stifled. He, <laughs> I think he recognized that uh, they, it was a really good script and that they knew what they were doing. 
Yeah, and I think there is a certain wild energy to the entire cast mm -hmm. that he brings to a lot of movies, but maybe he's the only one bringing that sort of energy to those films. <laughs> yeah, we've we've seen that in a lot of the films before this, where Nick Cage is uh, the chaos factor. Yeah, in in any given movie, and um, which means it's always incredibly interesting when he's on screen but also it kind of gives a disjointed feeling to a lot of the films because you know it's the rest of the cast or the script or whatever like no, no other aspect of it really rises up to meet him at his level well in in this movie uh, this is i think the most cartoonish like overtly cartoonish movie that we've seen him in so far and and it's the best fit like not coincidentally he he is the chaos factor but it calls for him to be chaotic because he's essentially a cartoon character, you know? I mean, he said in the last, in Peggy Sue Got Married, he based his performance on Pokey from Gumby, infamously. So he was literally <laughs> acting like a cartoon yeah. character. And, and in this, Claymation. he based it on Woody Woodpecker, which oh. uh, one, of, one of his uh, few actual additions to the script was the Woody Woodpecker tattoo that he and uh, the biker from hell both have. Mm -hmm. I was wondering about that. Yeah. Because that, it's, I, I didn't, that is one aspect that I hadn't remembered from the last time I saw it. I didn't realize that it was so, uh, that, that like the tattoos were so apparent. Yeah. And I feel like they were, it's, it's interesting that he brought it to the movie because it, it felt yeah, the fact that they both had it, that there was like some significance to that. Well, maybe that's kind of why it like it it feels like something that holds a lot of meaning, but in kind of the scope of the movie, it maybe doesn't. You know, it, it um, it's a nice little addition. Well, I think it I think it might. So we first see the biker in High's like High's dream right. after uh, John Goodman's character escapes from prison. Um, and then we later see the same character in reality. So either High had this vision of something that actually exists, or his subconscious manifested this guy into reality. Um, because he was because he was like guilty for stealing the baby, and he had to find a way right. to like bring it back or something. Yeah, and the and the matching tattoos indicate that there is some sort of mm. connection between I see yeah. between High right. and the biker. Yeah, yeah that element to this movie which because the realism is already really heightened and then it it turns into like full-on magical realism when the biker comes on because there is no explanation on where he comes from and he sort of his presence gets more grounded as it goes on after he visits nathan arizona and is like i'm a bounty hunter and you're like oh okay but they like they let that take its time and uh, and it's still he comes onto the screen like just blowing shit up and being very like a oh, bunny is that is that yeah. what he throws the grenade well, at well, yeah. yeah and I think that has some symbolism too he throws a bunny at or throws he throws a grenade at a bunny which is like an innocent right. sort of like a baby and then a, fl a flower catches on fire right and, and the, it shoots a lizard too yeah and the first thing that High says or one of the first conversations he has with uh, Ed. Um, he says, you're a flower. You are mm. just a desert flower. Right. So if she's the flower, that uh, gives a little bit more uh, credit to the bunny being the baby. Sure. It's hard out there for little things. I mean, also, yeah. there's, a, a, the, there's this strain through it. The tension in their relationship is that, you know, High is too wild for her and not, not he's not 
good enough for to be the family man that Ed needs. And, you know, that lends some credence to this idea that the biker is like his the wild side, his of him. id yeah. just released in, uh, you know, the the flip side to uh, all of the, the wildness of him. I think it's interesting that he doesn't commit any crimes. Like, he always makes sure the gun isn't loaded. Right. Like, he's a criminal, but he's not, like, a malicious person, or he's not committing the crimes for, like, selfish reasons. You know, like, he's always trying... I mean, except for the reason maybe that it's, like, a dark side of him that he can't control. But, like, right. he's he's always... You know, like, he steals the diapers and he steals the money in order to raise the baby and, like, have the family. Yeah, he he's a character who is completely driven by impulse and by being directed by other people which it, which is part of why his I like I'm really touched by his relationship with Ed like I think as a an on-screen couple it's just really sweet because they do balance each other out because they're both good people humble like moral people and um their dynamic works in that she you know he needs someone to kind of tell him what to do like when he first they first try to steal the baby, he comes out. He's like, I can't do it, and she's like, Go back in. There. She tells him to yeah. do it. There's, I mean, it's interesting to me. You you think that they're both moral people when one of pretty much the only thing we know about High's past is well, his parents are dead, and that he is a repeat offender, right? Recidivist. Yeah, and and part of the reason I think the Coen brothers wanted to do voiceover at the beginning and every once in a while throughout the movie is to get us in the head of this character mm-hmm. who may not immediately be the most likable guy. Right. But we're on his side, and then 10 minutes into the movie, we're rooting for this guy to steal a baby. Well, like, that's a, that's amazing filmmaking when we can be yeah. rooting for a character to steal a baby. I know. And and I think they know that that, that is like a, a small needle to thread and they do it so confidently. The introduction that's like, I think, 11 minutes long mm-hmm. um, and a, essentially a montage with voiceover with like little bits of dialogue. Like it does it does the work of the whole movie like it sets and like it's it's perfectly executed. It's perfectly like, executed. like usually I'm not a huge fan of voiceovers in movies because yeah. I think it's just kind of lazy storytelling. Right. But in this instance. Like they had to do it, mm-hmm. and they had to do it that very specific way because, again, otherwise, like they have to get you on board as quickly as possible. That that we want the guy to steal the baby. Right. Like we're rooting for the guy to steal the baby, and the quickest way to do that is for that like cold open. Yeah, and and it's just it's perfectly executed for exactly that reason. We like high, and I think just as importantly, we see the world of this movie is. Um, a cartoon where people are I don't want to say that people are just essentially good or not that not that complex maybe but like the world of this movie feels safe in a way do you guys know what I mean like it it doesn't you know the prison is a community where uh high keeps going back and be like hey what's that like there's some great gags like that or like the gag where uh, they get married and on one side uh, on the bride side is all police officers and on the uh groom's side is everyone just in hawaiian shirts all the cons in hawaiian shirts right and uh i mean it's just the the idea of stealing a baby in this reality doesn't seem like an unconscionable crime mm-hmm. it seems like you know uh like in cartoons when you get blown up and your face is just black and sooty you know it's like 
the the consequences of things feel not as heavy and they play with that as the movie goes on because i mean i want to talk about the ending later but i think things get a little heavier as as it goes on but i think they work really hard to to give it a light touch i mean it's essentially a slapstick movie yeah like comedy is really broad and physical but right. We have a scene where Nick Cage gets beat up and spits out a tooth into the face of his attacker. I mean, that is also like his cli- idea. Oh, is it? Yeah. That, that to me is like the most cliche slapstick goofy thing you can do. One of the things, too, that he like went in reading about it where it was like the Coens tried to rein him in. The the thing that keeps getting cited is the scene where he's running through the uh, the supermarket and all the guns are shooting at him and Nick Cage wanted to like stop and calmly look at his watch and then like resume running. And Joel Cohen was like, no, sorry. Like you can't do that. And that was like a moment of friction, (laughs) but yeah, it's, that's, that's such like a straight up cartoon move. I got to say, I think of the roles that we've seen so far, this is like there's no doubt in my mind that he is the perfect person to play this role that he like and he knocks it out of the park like his he people don't talk about Nick Cage as a physical actor very much but his physical work in this movie is amazing he he does so much with his body and so much with like the with, it, with his hair yeah his hair and his mustache out of control <laughs> Yeah, he's very physical in the the first scene after the the opening sequence where he's stealing the baby um, because he's basically acting with nothing. I mean, babies don't really... I mean, they react, so maybe he's reacting to their reactions, but they're unpredictable. Um, And he's hopping up, crawling under, running around, and it's shot in in a very kinetic way. The camera's always moving, and the camera is above him to make him look smaller, and below the babies to make them look bigger. So we feel that sense of overwhelming that he's feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually he leaves and is like, they were crying. When in fact they weren't crying, if you go back and watch it, they were a little fussy, but right. no one was crying in that scene. He just got overwhelmed by how many there were. Um, and then obviously went back and, and snagged one. Do the babies ever cry at all in the movie? No, they don't once. A lot of other characters do cry. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Babies, not so much, though. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, Nathan Jr. is kind of like this Zen little like Buddha that everybody like projects onto. Yeah, they call him an angel. A yeah. lot of people call him an angel. Right. I didn't realize that Nick Cage was only 22 when they shot this movie. Yeah, yeah. he was really young. 22 yeah. years old. Holly Hunter was 28. John Goodman was 34, which those ages are a lot more palatable. Mm-hmm. I'm just shocked at 22 and being able to pull off this sort of performance. Yeah. He has matured into a, a, a good actor at this point. And well, it's interesting, too, that um, this movie and Moonstruck both came about because the Coen brothers and Cher, respectively, saw him and Peggy Sue got married giving a performance that he was like universally lambasted for. And we're both like, oh, this guy is crazy. And he's the perfect person for these movies. <laughs> and um, which... I don't know. It's, it's just heartening to me that he did, like we talked about last time, he gave a performance that was very ballsy and because he wanted to and it paid off. Actually, there's Holly Hunter uh, talked about this uh, in regards to this movie. She said, Nick Cage is not a people pleaser. He's there to please himself. He has loyalty to the character and a faith in his own ingenuity that a lot of actors don't have. And I really admire that. 
which works in terms of this, but it's also, you know, um, in a lot of people's eyes, maybe a liability that, <laughs> yeah, he plays these characters wild, uh, and crazy, but he doesn't wink. There's no like, like, yeah, yeah I'm doing this role. Cause he so inhabits those people that he's playing. It's not, it, it, there's no irony to it. Right. It, it's, he's completely committed and he's doing it because he thinks that it's, it does justice to the character. And I think there's also in reading too about how he worked on this film. Um, I like, I guess he would look at the storyboards that the Coens had laid out, which were very precise because that's who they are and would then think about how to physically move his body so as to make it the most like, you know, the, to give it the most, uh, biggest angles and, and, uh, how to work with the camera. And then also he would read his script. And I think this is something that you see a lot in his line readings. He will read lines in, over and over again in different ways to give them like a weird like lyrical quality and then when he has like the sounds and the like rises and falls and however he wants them to be then he'll kind of like put the emotion in behind it but i there's this weird like like david lynch called him uh, something like the, the jazz musician and the way that he acts mm -hmm. um which is <laughs> pretty grandiose but uh also like i don't know i i i think you see it in this movie he feels like he's playing his body like an instrument. I don't know. Is that too much? Am I like gushing too much about it? No, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous, I guess, to say, oh, he acts like jazz. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's true. And, and it's the kind of thing where like, I understand why, you know, like just like jazz, if you have a musical director of a band or, you know, a songwriter or whatever, they have a certain way of how it should sound. Mm -hmm. And then someone who just shreds, like, can come in and just, you know, do their own thing. And then it's like, yeah, that's great for what it is, but that's not what I wanted. Right. And so right. you have to decide. I mean, just like jazz, movie making is an extremely collaborative process. Right. And so there has to be a lot of give and take and, and pull between, you know, I mean, who whoever is leading it. Uh, and has a vision and the respective musicians because you also have to trust that they are the best at what they're doing and you you know hire them or cast them because mm -hmm. you want them to put their own stamp on it and to do what they do yeah um and i think just in this instance that it just worked out perfectly yeah. that the cohen's had a specific way of doing it and nick cage was able to come in and you know despite not exactly getting his way all the time he still uh, you know his his style perfectly slotted right in kind of to how they had already envisioned that character happening totally yeah it, it it's a fit i mean i think we should say too like in all the other coen brothers movies the rest of the cast is phenomenal and perfectly cast right and they wrote the ed character for holly hunter oh really who was a friend of theirs and also francis mcdormand's roommate in New York oh, at who, the time. Francis McDormand married one of the Coens, right? Uh, uh, yes. Joel or... Joel, I think. Yeah. I, don't, I don't remember which one, but yeah, she did. And I think they were... They might have already been married or had already or were yeah. already dating when this movie this was made. They, they were married in 1984. Oh, there you go. I mean, Holly Hunter is so good in this. That my, my favorite part is when... Uh, is when they capture, they kidnap the baby for the first time, and she just starts crying in the car. She goes, "I love him so much!" Like she just turns it on, and she is a good compliment to Nick Cage. She's just as zany in a way, but it's very controlled. 
he buttons down a little bit when he marries her and then she loosens up enough to want to steal a baby. Right. And then they both kind of, I mean, he goes wild and starts uh, robbing convenience stores again and she becomes despondent and, uh, but they almost break apart and then hook back up. Did you know Kevin Costner like auditioned three times for this role and he was like basically begging the Coens to cast him, but they had like already decided on Nick Cage at that point. I can't picture that at all. Kevin Costner? Really? I guess their one qualm with Nick Cage is that they felt he was too urban, quote unquote urban. I don't get that at all. Yeah. Well, the that is an interesting thing to talk about is the weird foghorn leghorn accents that everyone's putting on because I I've been to Arizona I've I've been to Arizona <laughs> with Miles actually and I haven't no one met, talks like that yeah I've no. never met anyone in the world who talks like that let alone someone from Arizona and in this movie somehow everybody talks like that and I don't seem to mind this is the first uh, of many dubious southern accents that uh, Nick Cage puts on. Um, It's it's an important first. Nick Cage is really good at dubious accents. Oh, he's great. I I also, you know, just in keeping track of his hair, this might be the the wildest that it ever gets. I mean, he he really has... I, I empathize with this because, like, I'll look in the mirror and I'll be surprised at what it's doing. And I feel like he has the kind of hair that he probably goes to hair and wardrobe and the people are like, okay, you know, (laughs) and in this movie, like it just clearly all that needed to happen was for them to just not do anything. (laughs) And and it's amazing. And the hair too, like from scene to scene, the hair reflects his emotional state depending on the scene that he's in. Yes. It's funny because for all the scenes that he's like robbing stuff, he almost comes alive, like, he comes alive only when he's committing crimes, kind of. Because for the rest of the movie, he's sort of got this, like, it's he's more, like, dulled and, like, mm-hmm. subdued. And he's just a lot, he talks a lot slower than every other character. He, he's not driving the situation. He, he is, feel, he's reacting to, to Ed or to uh, his foreman. What was that guy's name? Oh, yeah. Glenn. Glenn, Glenn yeah. yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, when he's robbing, when he he's he's robbing a convenience store he's like in charge yeah there is a a theme that uh goes throughout the whole film about jobs and specifically anti-jobs um he first says of his job uh drilling holes in sheet metal uh most ways the job was a lot like prison except ed was waiting at the end of every day and a paycheck at the end of every week so prison equals job sort of and also, every boss we see, which really is just Glenn and Nathan Arizona, mm-hmm. is a total ass to their employees. Right. Uh, Glenn's an ass to everybody, especially Polish people, for whatever reason. <laughs> Nathan Arizona has some redeeming moments at times. He's really sweet to Ed and high at the end. Um, but to his employees, he is just not sweet at all. And admits, admits that they all hate him. Right. Uh, he, when he is talking to Glenn before he punches him, before high punches Glenn in the face. Um, He's talking about just feeling suffocated. He says, I don't know, maybe it's wife, kids, family life. I mean, uh, are you satisfied, Glenn? Don't you ever feel suffocated? Like there's something big pressing down. So like high as like this button up guy with a job just feels like he's suffocating. Right. Well, and and he falls in love with Ed, but the domestic dream is like, it doesn't feel like it's completely his. Like, he wants it, but he wants it because Ed wants it. 
and he wants to make her happy. Right. He's coming from the same like school of thought as Gail and Avelle, the 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 brothers. They say to him, "Come on, hi, you're young. You got your health. What do you want with a job?" Right. I feel like that's the whole point of these criminals is like we're alive when we're stealing and we're less alive if we sort of line up and adhere to the system and the rules. One of the things that makes the Coen Brothers movies so interesting is that the storylines turn on things that you don't expect. Like I, I, the they don't telegraph the idea that everyone is going to want the baby and fall in love with the baby. Like those criminals uh john goodman and uh is it william forsyth feel uh, i don't know they kind of fill you with this like dread this like oh no they have the baby and then it just like they just like let the air out where they're like no actually they love the baby too and then glenn is gonna ruin them but no actually he just wants the baby well, no one really knows what to do with the baby once they get it. Like everyone, you know, like uh, like High and Ed and Glenn and the and the brothers, like they all, and then obviously the the Arizonas right. want it back, but they all want the baby. Even the Arizonas aren't doing anything. With right, the baby. they're not. They yeah. just they they put all five of them in like one giant crib and then just leave them upstairs. Yeah. It's like they don't really they don't ever deal with them. Like no one actually. I mean, Ed the most of anyone probably but no one really deals with the baby like you're supposed to deal with a baby right and then they all get like super flustered and freak out and like they're like oh my god yeah the baby almost is like a sack full of money where everyone seems to want it at a certain point and everyone is trying to get it like in other movies that role might be played instead of a a baby by just a briefcase or some sort of satchel of money well that and it is essentially for the brothers until they spend five minutes with it. Yeah, and, and just like no, we want. And also, it. the biker basically yeah. sees it as a briefcase of money. Right. The reckless situations that the that the baby gets in are so stressful <laughs> for Fly, me to watch. He flies <laughs> off the roof of a car twice. Twice. <laughs> twice. What? And then when when they when they drive back and and the car stops like two inches from the baby. <laughs> yeah. I'm like I had like a heart attack watching that. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I um. I wonder if they shot that in reverse. They did. Yeah. Yeah. They had to have. Right. Yeah. yeah. I guess uh, they was they just used one baby for that baby the whole movie. I guess the same baby actor, but for the other babies in the scene where High uh, steals Nathan Arizona from, and all the Quints are there, uh, there were fifteen babies, oh. baby doubles. Oh really? Yeah, that's a lot of babies. Sounds like a really hard scene to to shoot. Well, also I'm just wondering how, as a director, you I mean obviously you can't direct a baby, but how do you direct the scene? with that babies in it because you can't especially for the cohen's who so meticulously thought every aspect of every shot out ahead of time like there's just some variables in there with the babies that i i I, I, like i wonder how long it took them to get what they wanted or if they just kind of had to settle for certain things sometimes so many complicated shots there are shots where the baby needs to do something like crawl to a place or two and people are acting around the baby constantly and uh which makes it more amazing to me that there was just one baby actor who was just chill the whole time and if you have a scene using 15 babies you have 15 sets of parents yeah so that's just a lot of people and they're watching because they want to make sure their baby's fine right it's just a lot of people hanging around monitors and just getting in the way more or less a lot of pressure yeah so when this movie came out it was not a huge hit um i think people kind of didn't know what to do with it and a lot of the reactions that critics had they thought which is something that i think has come up for the cohen's 
uh, all throughout their career is that they felt that the movie was looking down on its characters and kind of like uh, condescending towards them or like, what did you guys think? I don't get that at all. And I really never get it from any of their movies. I understand why people say that, but I also think that they, they do a really good job of creating empathy and like sympathy with their characters, despite throughout, not just specifically this movie, but just, you know, any movie in their career, a lot of the characters are really broad and cartoonish and they make stupid decisions, you know, and like, I mean, the whole thing with the Coen brothers is there's always a a man or like a group of people that are out of their element and they like don't really know what the hell's going on around them and they're trying to figure it out and they're just being like bumbling idiots a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And despite all that, like you really make emotional human connections with a lot of their characters. And I think that takes incredible skill. And, you know, the script helps a lot because yeah. all of the lines are written to very specifically convey. I mean, they, the Coen brothers kind of herd you with their films into feeling a certain way and the way that they want. And there's not really a lot of ambiguity in that sense. That's true. It does feel like that any, any ambiguous points feel very uh, planned. If they, the Coen brothers want a certain reaction, they, can, they know how to get it. Yeah. Music is a good example where they use that yodely song mm-hmm. um, three times. They use it uh, at like the 11 minute mark when the title drops right. for the first time. Then they use it at the midpoint at like the 45 minute when High is stealing the huggies. Right. And then they use it for the end credits. And it gives a great sense of pacing mm-hmm. 45 minutes apart from each other three different times. I love the way this movie is paced. I I feel like there are so many scenes that are i mean they're like tour de forces but because they're all put together and we know to expect that from the coen brothers we don't necessarily think about them that way but like the whole sequence with the brothers are they brothers john goodman and william yes and uh uh, them going back and forth with the baby and like screaming in the car and like pounding so like is just fucking classic and uh I don't know what else. What are I mean the the whole Huggies sequence is well, great. Yeah, there's there's amazing lines throughout yeah. the whole uh, movie. I I know when Miles asked me to do this, immediately the line that popped into my head um, was in that first that initial sequence. Um, my seed can find no yeah, purchase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I've a ro- her her insides are a is, rocky yeah. place. Yeah, so um this line is at first I didn't believe it that this woman who looked as fertile as the Tennessee Valley could bear no could not bear children. But the doctor explained that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. I mean it's biblical. Yeah. Like it yeah. sounds like and and a lot of the lines sound like they're not they're really anachronistic in like the wording and like how the sentence is structured. There's this old piece of like acting advice that um I think Lucille Ball said it where if you want to look drunk just try and look like as sober as you can. Um and uh and uh I feel like the Coens are great at doing this with if you want a character to seem kind of simple have them use really big words and speak uh in like a kind of grandiloquent way because everybody does in in this movie for the most part even the criminals the do. criminals do and even um, nathan arizona does mm-hmm. and but what come you know it it just makes it funnier and but 
you know, it doesn't, I don't think, rob them of their dignity or you're not laughing at them. Like, it's just, it's really endearing. And it makes just listening to the dialogue so fun. Well, this, this is what I was saying to Alex, I think, Dave, when, b- before you came in, before we started. Reading screenplays and plays, like, you're not supposed to read them. You're supposed to not engage with them on the page. They're meant to be seen and heard. And I think when Alex mentioned to me that he had a book of the Coen Brothers scripts, the first thing I thought was, like, that would be great to read mm-hmm. because the dialogue uh, is probably just as beautiful on the page as it is spoken. Like, you know, they, they really, again, it's like you were saying, they really thought out very specifically, like, each line and what it means mm-hmm. and how it reflects the character, you know? And it's not like... And, I, and uh, despite the movie being slapstick, I don't feel like reading it detracts from, like, understanding the movie, you know, even though you can't see the physical comedy the dialogue does a lot of that work for you. Yeah, it does. And I think there's a reason, too, why we've all seen this movie multiple times and I think probably got something different out of it each time. Or there's uh, there are different parts that stand out to me as just being so fucking clever that, you know, but they're going, like, lines are just going by so fast. And they don't, and it doesn't distract from itself. Like, it never... It, it doesn't call attention to itself in a way that where the Coen brothers feel like they're being overly clever. It's just the way people speak in this world. I'm also impressed with um, how Nick Cage and High, I guess, the character of High could be a Halloween costume. <laughs> I feel like that's the epitome, if, if you're an actor, is have roles that people dress up for as Halloween. <laughs> that's really easy if you're Iron Man, because people want to be Iron Man from a comic book or whatever. But if you're just like a criminal guy who steals babies, like that for a Halloween costume is a little weird. But because of the costuming choices, because of the hair, I mean, the yeah. hair is a huge aspect, the mustache. You just gave me my Halloween costume, Yeah, Alex. it's such Thank a good you. idea. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll, I'll be Holly Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> we need a baby then. I'll, I'll be a baby. <laughs> Perfect. It's all coming together, guys. Something else that... Uh, this goes back to what we were talking about before that um, in reading about Nick Cage's uh, influences for this role and just his acting in general, a big one was Jerry Lewis, which makes sense. And I've, I've never watched that much Jerry Lewis, but uh, he says that he's one of the most surreal comedians, uh, physical comedians. So I I don't know, but also like he says that he didn't want to, like his idea of great acting is uh, specifically like Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet and uh, Eric Roberts in Star 80, which so just... Wait, what is Star 80? It's... Uh, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> it's a kind of true crime movie from uh, the late 70s, early 80s um, about... Uh, this really lurid story about I forget the details. This model who I think she was kind she was married I think to Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, okay. Um, and she got murdered by a guy uh, played by Eric Roberts. And uh, I've just seen clips of it of him being a total like wackadoo. And and it. Nick Cage thought this role was comedic. He thought that it was great acting. Oh, okay. That um, that it's just really over the top. Right. Um, Does he talk like a cartoon character in it? Uh, kind of, like a, a scary cartoon character, maybe. Which is the same for Dennis Hopper in Blue right. Velvet, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, I just thought that those were inter- interesting uh, touch points, which make complete sense um, as uh, 
also being this kind of like heightened acting that is yeah it's it's not connected to reality but it's just like you kind of can't take your eyes away from it and thankfully he's in a movie where everybody's on that same trip like john goodman is fucking amazing in this movie so so is william forsyth looking so greasy and gross Mm -hmm. (laughs) they both look gross both the brothers are gross looking in this movie is this the only time john goodman and nick cage are in a movie together I was wondering that too. I actually. believe so. I know Holly Hunter and and Goodman were in another movie together, and then way later on they were in Oh Brother together mm, right, too. Right, right. But I don't know that Nick Cage and John Goodman were ever in another film together. Yeah. But they're a great pair of actors. Like they yeah. really they complement each other so well. They really do. They're both able to steal the scene when mm-hmm. whatever they're doing. But they can be generous too. Right. Like um it's it's nice Nick Cage can be like quietly crazy in this uh movie and give he gives enough air for everyone else around him to to be as just as ludicrous. The actor who plays Nathan Arizona was great too. The scene where where the uh the detectives are like talking to him <laughs> after the baby gets stolen <laughs> yeah. is great. It is so good. Um with like really good sight gags like him like grabbing the camel hair coat and getting the fingerprint ink on it and just like awesome back and forth yeah they also that's the it, that scene has the second mention of aliens in it oh right because the journalist asks about the rumors about how the baby was abducted by aliens and and he has that great like rejoinder where he's just like don't print that like if the wife saw it she couldn't bear it right <laughs> not that it's ridiculous but just that it's like like please don't yeah, and previously in the machine shop, actually in the same same scene, he's talking about how job is a lot like prison. Um, Bud, the older guy, mm-hmm. talks about how they were approaching a wreck and there was a spherical object right. on the highway, and, <laughs> yeah. it, and it wasn't a piece of the car. It yeah, some sort of other spherical object, <laughs> and it's just not ever mentioned again. It's right. just put there and left and walked away from. It is. Which is like when I've worked jobs like that, those are the kind of conversations I feel like I, I was trapped into having. Right. Um, but, and also contribute to this idea that Arizona is this kind of fantastical place, um, like a little bit to the left of reality where, um, yeah, just these sort of things are more commonplace. Mm-hmm. Apparently the mayor of Scottsdale, which is, the specific city where they shot a lot of the movie was appalled when he saw the final product. Oh no! Yeah, he was not happy, and he like did like press releases and like went on record as saying like, "This is this movie has no social redeeming value, <laughs> and like it does not represent the people of Arizona or Scottsdale, and like the Coen brothers should be ashamed of themselves." <laughs> like he like really really hated it for some reason. Yeah, I, it seems like people did have really strong negative reactions to it. Um, it, yeah, and they set it in Tempe, Arizona, which I don't know enough about Arizona to really know the difference between Scottsdale and Tempe, other than I think Scottsdale's closer to the Grand Canyon. Is Tempe a, like a suburb of Phoenix? or They said the population was like 13,900. Oh, right, so, yeah, oh, well, that was in 1987. <laughs> Nick Cage said to Time Out magazine, it's an Arizona of the mind. It's kind of like the image of quintessential America, the way people would imagine it to be. But you see why I say quintessential is it's the whole idea of what America should be like in the Southwest. Because in Arizona, they don't sound like that. It has the look of Arizona and the accent of Houston, Texas. Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've never been to Houston, so it's possible that is the Houston accent. I've heard rappers from Houston, though, and they don't sound like Foghorn Leghorn. A few weeks after the film opened, a group of parents, social workers, and clergy in Seattle claimed the film encouraged child abuse and launched protests outside cinemas showing it. It encourages people to view children as objects and in that way encourages child abuse, child neglect, and kidnap, said Mike Zink pastor of Family Life Centers in Seattle. He and his followers picketed the Alderwood Mall Grand Cinemas carrying banners reading Big Bucks and Baby Abuse. <laughs> That's too bad. Well, it's like what, what Alex was saying about the baby. I mean, he was kind of right. The baby is just treated as an object, as an object. in this movie. Yeah. You know, as like as like an object to further the plot, kind of. So And it it doesn't get super happy. It doesn't get super sad. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's like just like a blank slate yeah. for like them to project their own emotions onto it. Right, exactly. And I, I find that interesting that Nathan Arizona's company is Unpainted Arizona. Right. And, and likewise, this baby is sort of an unpainted baby that High and Ed can impact, you know, possibly by giving him a football that leads him to be a <laughs> yeah. football player at the right. end if you believe that vision is, is true. Right. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a a little theme element that they put in there. Um, also, he changed his name to Arizona. Right, I forget what he was beforehand. Yeah, it's like Farnsturf or something. Yeah, it's an funny. ugly it's an ugly name. Oh, and the whole the whole uh, advertisement uh, tagline is that if if you can find lower prices, then my name isn't Arizona. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. You have to be really arrogant, I think, to name yourself after the state that you live in. Yeah. Right? I think so. Like like uh, Alex California? Yeah, I'm into that. <laughs> <laughs> you would make a great Alex California. Alex California. California. <laughs> I'll put my hair down. It'll flow in the breeze. Raising California. Yep. Raising <laughs> California, the sequel. I'm going to steal two babies. <laughs> Whenever you, you kind of think that you have the the trajectory of the movie kind of tagged, like, oh, it's this kind of movie now, like, they'll kind of quietly, like, turn it. I think the biggest thing of that for me, just as, like, someone who's ingested so much media and, you know, feel like I can see whatever's coming a mile away, like, is when they go back to return the baby and Nathan Arizona comes in on them and he's like oh, you're the ones who stole the baby and they sort of pour their hearts out to him a little bit and refuse a reward and everything. And and I just, I I always think that he's going to be like, you know what? We have too many babies. Take the baby, you know? <laughs> you <laughs> and I guess maybe like, maybe just because also, like I keep saying, the movie is so heightened that feels like a possibility <laughs> that someone would do. It It feels like this like kind of, hard come down a little bit to reality that it's like he's like stick together you two but get out of my house so you you can you can go out the way you came in <laughs> through the window <laughs> yeah that's a nice tag to the end of that scene yeah it's great and i i don't know like i wanted to i, I was getting a little a little emotional and then high has that like beautiful vision at the end of like you said the uh, uh nathan jr becoming a football star and and then all, everybody, like Glenn's family, is multiplies, and everybody is just getting what they want. But with that kind of drop down to reality, for me, it's very apparent that that could very well be a dream. You know, like part of part of it is like, okay, where did the biker come from? Did he come out of High's mind? Mm -hmm. And um, is is there some like tear in the fabric of whatever this reality is that like dreams are coming in and out? Or 
is that actually just this big come down that these these people are going to live you know alone in a trailer park forever like after this you know it's a nice dream to have but um it's not an unambiguously happy ending i mean the whole movie feels like it could be a dream too yeah you know i I mean like none of it feels real right yeah even the last line of the movie he says right and it seemed real it seemed like us he's not saying that it was us but it seemed like us and it seemed like, well, our home, if not Arizona, then a land not too far away where all parents are strong and wise and capable and all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. So we're, not, we're not even sure that it even takes place in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> Raising Utah. <laughs> Doesn't have quite the same Johnny ring Utah. To it. Johnny Utah. I up next week point break. <laughs> we'll do that one. Dave, that would go in line with our with our Keanu conversation from oh, from man. the last episode. Yeah. The Keanu cast. <laughs> what just like the blandest actor to follow an interesting uh, filmography through. <laughs> well, I guess the Coens are like this with their endings too. Is they they don't like I have the sense that a lot of their movies don't end with like neat bows. They end with neat bows, but they don't ever end with the bow that you expect them to end with. Yeah. yeah like Lebowski like has an ending. Right. But it's like a guy's dead and like, yeah. you know, it, it's not necessarily the happy ending. Yeah, I guess maybe they're, they're not neat emotionally. Mm. I guess that's mm. the thing. Like structurally, of course, like the whole, their movies are, are beautifully planned out. But you don't get the the emotional journey that you ever expect. Even in No Country for Old Men, which isn't their story, um, you know, the ending is very ambiguous. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't give you um, the, you know, good succeeds over evil. Yeah, the bad guy is injured and walks away, and then the movie ends. Right. It's like, what happens? Right. I wonder what people thought of this movie when it first came out. Because the only other context they had for it was Blood Simple, which mm-hmm. is like the complete opposite kind of movie as this movie. Right. When I watch Raising Arizona, I take into account like all of the movies that I've seen that they made after, you know, like right, Lebowski yeah. and like yeah. Oh Brother and like right. Burn After Reading and and uh Hudsucker. And mm-hmm. so I sort of feel like this movie must have really confused the hell out of people when it first came out because there was literally no context for it. Yeah. To me it feels a little bit like Lebowski. It feels it, it has a lot of Lebowski elements into it, and that, that's actually where I first thought of the like briefcase full of money. Uh-huh. Although in Lebowski, there's never actually a briefcase full. Of, we think there is for a part of Lebowski, um, and in both this movie and Lebowski, there's huge surreal elements, and I don't think the Coens get enough credit for being surreal filmmakers. They make movies that are very much movies, like they they're not imitating reality. It's a story that is like every part of its filmicness film whatever (laughs) (laughs) that it is from the way the cameras move to everything about it is part of the intrinsic story and is you know it is a movie like you can't take these stories and put them somewhere else again even no country for old men or like true grit they're so cinematic you feel like you're in their Sandbox, the Coen Brothers sandbox. I would characterize them as postmodern filmmakers, and part of that uh, school of thought is make films um, 
with a past knowledge of films. So right. reference other films in your film with either the shots you're, you're choosing to do or certain lines or, you know, even, um, like you said, Woody Woodpecker, putting mm -hmm. a Woody Woodpecker tattoo references another character in literature, even if that character happens to be a cartoon character. Well, and Raising Arizona specifically, and, and a lot of their movies in general, feel like classic films like mm -hmm. they are made to feel like a, a films from like old hollywood you know or, or timeless like, yeah where they kind of like drudge up like certain aspects of genre movies that hollywood hasn't engaged with in mm -hmm. decades mm -hmm. but they do it so effortlessly that it never feels like a, a pointed you know it's sort of like nick cage's performances like there's no winking going on right it doesn't in, feel like an homage right they're just using those tools and but also using your familiarity, your like, your assumed familiarity with those tropes and tools to not just say, "Hey, remember this," or "Hey, look what we're doing," but to twist it into something original. Like again, like those those emotional beats that this movie hits are not familiar. the The ways that this movie is subtly funny or tragic or anything are not familiar outside of the Coen Brothers filmography, but they're pulling from other sources and hoping that you uh, put the pieces put together. The pieces together. Yeah. And even in just a basic plot, like I'm trying to think of another movie where babies are stolen. Um, and, and that's just like the broadest plot point. Right. Well, that's the thing is there, are, there is a, I don't, wouldn't call it a genre, but there is a plot device that, that a lot of movies use, like, like robbery movies, you know, or like heist movies, mm -hmm. which I guess you could, kind of classify this right, as a heist right, right. movie between stealing the baby and the brothers robbing the bank it's there's definitely it's like that aspect of it it's like a neo-western also uh, yeah with with like the fight at the end the fight at the end there's like bad guys who escape from prison and then hide out in his house and um he's sort of i mean they're all sort of outlaws it's definitely set in the west right um, they have ridiculous accents. I mean, it, <laughs> that that last scene between High and the the biker is very much a duel. Yeah, a duel at high noon. That is a gruesome ending, being ex just blown up by yeah. your own grenade. And again, like a movie where he Nick Cage is running around without loaded guns. You know, <laughs> there where I was saying like the the movie feels like the stakes for people getting injured or things going bad feel low. Um, yeah. Well, because he gets blown up by a grenade, but there's no gore. Yeah, yeah. And you see his like, wait, is it a leg or an arm yeah, like that, that they like something. pan over afterward? But there's no, it's just charred black. And I, but even like his and his hand gets injured before that, and it just like bursts into flames. Like he mm -hmm. doesn't seem like mm -hmm. he's. He, they they make a point of him being seeming unworldly. Yeah, it's and not the, murder. And and the only actual violence that happens is to this dark nebulous shadowy figure that may or may not be real right and that's very specific yeah well, I, I think he's certainly real um but whether or not he's a manifestation of a dream i think is undecided but other people interact with him right. without nick cage being there I read that um, the movie they wanted to make after Blood Simple was Hudsucker Proxy. Oh, really? But the budget was like $40 million, and yeah. they just couldn't make it. So they wrote this movie in like three months or, or something, and uh, later on made Hudsucker Proxy. Which I haven't seen that one in a minute either. Yeah, me either. I think I, that was a big flop for them, too. Yeah, like, I, I really like it. Me too. 
there's an aspect of the script that comes up a couple times where conversations where people sort of take things too literally. Um, during his his parole meeting, um, it, it's where they're funny. like, we don't we don't want you to lie yeah, to us. Yeah, the chairman like we don't we don't want you to. Well, here, Alex, you can just read it. Yeah, the chairman says, "You're not just telling us what we want to hear." No, sir. No way. Because we want to hear the truth. Well, then I guess I am telling you what you want to hear. <laughs> Boy, didn't we just tell you not to do that? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, then. <laughs> Where it's just this like circular. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And he's telling the truth. He's trying to tell the truth, I think. But uh, he's struggling. And similarly, when, when the brothers are robbing the bank, uh, right. Gail says, all right, you hayseeds, it's a stick up. Everybody freeze. Everybody down on the ground. And, and one of the hayseeds responds, well, which is it, young fella? You want I should freeze or get down on the ground? Mean to say, if and I freeze, I can't rightly drop. And if and I drop, I'm going to be in motion, you see? <laughs> and, it, and it's, again, this just logic taken a little too far. Right. Too literal. Um, I, I don't know if this is this this isn't really the same thing, but uh, one of my favorite jokes is uh, Glenn telling the the Polish jokes to <laughs> where <laughs> where he tells the joke and he's like, "Damn, I told it wrong." Yeah. And then he, and well, he said, <laughs> "How many how many Polacks does it take to screw in a light bulb?" <laughs> three. <laughs> then he's like, "Wait, why does it take three Polacks to screw in a light bulb? Because they're so damn dumb." <laughs> it's a way Homer. Yeah, when but then Nick Cage says, "But I'm already home." Yeah, yeah. When someone dumb is making fun of people for being dumb, it is this ironic humor, right? It, it. I don't think we were supposed to like anything about that guy, Glenn. I don't. I don't know if he like a lot of these characters have some redeeming qualities. Either a lot of it is how they treat the baby, mm -hmm. um, but Glenn, we don't really see him treat the baby well. We just see him want the baby, and beyond that. He's just an ass and right. kind of racist against Polish people. Yeah. It's so satisfying when he runs into the cactus for that exact reason. <laughs> you know, you're just like, yes. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Yeah. After watching all these Nick Cage movies, uh, did you guys feel good about seeing him punched in the face? Was that like a cathartic moment? Like Seeing Nick Cage punched yeah, in the face? Yeah, getting punched in the face. I don't know. Was it cathartic for you, Moss? I wouldn't. I, I would say the more cathartic aspect of it was him spitting the tooth out. Yeah. Because that felt like a culmination of... He had acted like a cartoon character in so many other roles. Mm -hmm. Or not not specifically a cartoon character, but just very over the top. Right. And to finally see him just unabashedly engage with this dumb cartoon trope of spitting a, like spitting yeah. a tooth out <laughs> after you get punched in the face... Right. You know, there was a little part of me that was just that it was like that makes sense. Success. Like I'm, I'm, I was surprised yeah. it took him that long in his career to to pull that kind of move. Honestly, like we said last time, this, this is the golden age of Cage, and <laughs> he, he he is just. I mean, he's the on right fire. Actor, from the right here actor on out. in the right roles at, at the right times, the right directors and co-stars. Next time, we're going to be talking about Moonstruck, which. Arguably also a cartoonish uh, performance, but in a much different kind of movie.
So thank you for listening to Heat Seeking Panther. Um, we have an email address that I set up a long time ago, heatseekingpanther at gmail.com, if anyone's listening and they want to say hi. But you probably know me personally, so you can just... Uh, I can't uh, imagine that anyone listening to this doesn't know one of us one personally. Of us personally. <laughs> so, um, uh, you can contact us through Facebook or something. Yeah, questions, comments, concerns. Uh, we also are just perpetually looking for future guests. Yeah. So if you have a specific movie or role that you really feel like you want to talk about and have something to say about, feel free to email us there and uh, we'll get in touch with you. Thank you, Alex Heerman, for uh, being here and uh, adding your Coen Brothers expertise and um, to to our Nicolas Cage expertise. Thank you. I I loved it. You guys should come back and we can talk about other people's movies. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Fat Kilmer. Yeah. Fat Fat Kilmer podcast. (laughs) Fat Kilmer uh, film festival is what we should actually do. Yeah. That would be... From Island of Dr. Moreau (laughs) onto Twixt. (laughs) Dude, Twixt Twixt has now come up. This is the third time that Twixt has come up in this podcast, and it's not even about... uh, we're not even talking about Fat Kilmer what, at all. By the time that we have made it to the end of Nick Cage's filmography, he'll have hooked up with... No! Bad Lieutenant. Oh my god, you're right. Fat Kilmer. Oh, I forgot <laughs> that they cross paths. Yeah, it's all gonna come together. Okay, great. I can't wait. Alright, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.